Well, for those of you who may be visiting with us this morning, or maybe you haven't been here for a few weeks, I uh, want to start off by letting you know that we've been making our way through a series looking at the Gospel of Luke, uh, this, the book of Luke. And we've spent the last four or five weeks looking at the story surrounding the birth of, of two key figures in history, one being John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Messiah, and the other is the birth of Jesus. Last week, while we were here, we read about the birth of John the Baptist. Today, we're going to read about the birth of Christ. This morning, we're going to be taking a closer look at probably what is one of the best-known stories in all of Scripture. Even if you've never read the Bible, not a single word out of the Bible, there's a pretty good chance that you've heard the story about the birth of Jesus. You know, thanks to Christmas cards and Christmas pageants and outdoor manger scenes and even the annual Charlie Brown Christmas special, right, where Linus recites the story of Jesus' birth. Thanks to these things, many, many, many people have heard this story. And if you're someone who's grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story so many times that you have it close to memorized, right? You don't realize that you have it close to memorized, but if I start it anywhere in the story, you can almost finish the sentence, right? And because we know this story so, so well, there's some challenges that we face when we come to the text this morning. And the first challenge that we face is familiarity, right? We, we can become so familiar with the story of the birth of Christ that we fail to stand in awe and wonder at the significance of the birth of Christ. My prayer is that whether this is the first time you've heard the story or whether it's the millionth time, that you would not sit there and fail to be moved in awe and wonder at the birth of Jesus. The second challenge that we face is the mental picture that we have in our minds of what that first Christmas night might have looked like. You see, between the beautiful Christmas cards and the, the Christmas carols and centuries worth of tradition, we've all developed a, a picture in our minds that may or may not be as historically or biblically accurate as we might assume. Chances are, you know, when you think about the Christmas cards, and you think about just the, the beautiful, it's, like, it's a silent night, a holy night, all is calm. And I've been to births, and, and <laughs> three of them, three of them, right? And, and there was nothing serene about the birth of a baby, you know? There's nothing serene. And after the birth of the baby, sure, right? But leading up to it, not so much. For example, take a look at this, this nativity scene. Uh, that sits here. This is a, a scene that is in the bay window of my kitchen. It's beautiful. We like it. But it's not entirely accurate, is it? I mean, were the wise men really there on the night that Jesus was born? They are in this picture, <laughs> right? The answer is no, right? The wise men came sometime after Jesus was born, probably weeks maybe months, even up to two years after Jesus was born. And how many wise men were there? 
We've already sung it in songs this year, right? The, the three kings, they're not even kings, right? They're the wise men. Three of them, of course. There had to be three, right? Because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They couldn't have been more than three people there, right? It had to be three. No, the truth is we don't know how many wise men we were, that were there. We just know that wise men from the East came and they brought gifts. They brought gold. They brought frankincense. They brought myrrh. See, the challenge that we have is trying to determine what parts of this picture that we have in our minds, what parts of that picture are, are formed by tradition, and what parts of that story are informed by what the Bible actually teaches. Now, before you are, you know, developing your mind that's like, oh, man, that means I got to go home. I got to go throw up my wise men. We got <laughs> We got to burn the Christmas, all those awful Christmas cards that we got that had wise men in it. We're going to burn. No, listen, the wise men were part of the story. They just came after, okay? They are part of the story. By the way, I'm always tempted at Christmas. I'm always tempted to take the three wise men and their camel. Isn't it great? He's like looking at you in the camera, by the way. So I'm always tempted to take those and put them on the other side of the house somewhere, like all the way on the other side, showing like, hey, you know, they, were, they, were, they existed at the time of the birth. They were just far away. Listen, my intent this morning, my intent is not to ruin the picture that you have of Christmas. I'm not at all threatened by the fact that the manger scene in, 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 at my house, this, this nativity scene, I'm not bothered by the fact that there's wise men there. They did come and they did worship. It just happened later. My goal isn't to change your nativity scene. It's not to change your Christmas cards. My goal is to simply read the story this morning and imagine what that first Christmas might have been like. And it might have been just a little different than the picture that we have in our minds. But let me say this from the beginning. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the wise men were there or the wise men weren't there. It doesn't matter what type of manger Jesus was laid in. It doesn't matter. None of that really matters. What matters is that God the Father fulfilled his promise to send a Messiah. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the detail that matters. A Savior has been born. That's the point of Christmas. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, as we talked about in the first week of our series, Luke, the, the author of this book, is not only a physician, he is also a historian. He wants his readers to understand that the things that he is writing about happen to real people at a real time. And so he begins by placing us in a historical context. Luke says that the birth of Jesus took place while Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. More specifically, it was during the time of the first census while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So let's, let's just talk briefly about Caesar Augustus. This is the, the first emperor of Rome. His birth uh, name, rather, his birth name was Gaius Octavius, and he was, the, he was the great nephew, he was the adopted son, and he was the sole heir of Julius Caesar. 
after Caesar was murdered, eventually Caesar Augustus or Octavius became the leader in Rome. And Octavius was a gifted leader, perhaps one of the greatest leaders uh, in, in human history. And due to his efforts, he was responsible for bringing about a time of peace in the kingdom of uh, the, the Roman Empire that was unsurpassed. Uh, it's referred to as the Pax Romana, Roman peace. But it was a peace that was created by force. As they conquered areas, they would, they would set up soldiers in these areas that would maintain that peace. So it was a peaceful time in the Roman Empire. But it was only peaceful because you didn't dare to step out of line, right? Because if you stepped out of line, you would have to face the wrath of Rome. Well, he was such a great leader and brought this whole peace over the whole empire that in 27 BC, the Roman Senate gave Octavius the title Augustus, which means majestic one or exalted one, one who is worthy of reverence. You see, Caesar Augustus was more than just a leader in Rome. He was worshiped. During the reign of Caesar Augustus, coins were made with his, with his image, and there were inscriptions on those coins such as divine Caesar, son of God. Another inscription had these words, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and the savior of the whole world. Wow, that's Caesar Augustus. So when Luke says that these events took place during the, the time of Caesar Augustus, I think it is more than just a timestamp. He's reminding his readers of the social and the political and the religious climate of the day, a, a time when people were worshiping the emperor in Rome. It's as if he's saying, hey, listen, at the same time that people in Rome were worshiping the so-called son of God, the so-called majestic one, meanwhile, at that same time, the true son of God was being born in Bethlehem. So Caesar Augustus, with all his power, he ordered a census of his empire. Now, the censuses in Rome were conducted primarily for two purposes. One was for military purposes, and the second one was for assessing taxes. And since the Jews were exempt from serving in the military, this census, as far as Israel was concerned, was all about generating revenue for Rome. And verse 3 says that all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Again, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, Mary had an appearance from an angel. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, hey, even though you're a virgin, even though you're a virgin, you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a son, he is going to be called the Son of the Most High, and you're going to give him the name Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't say, he doesn't tell us here, you know, why the citizens were required to travel to their ancestral homes for the census, because generally speaking, the Romans didn't care where you were born. They don't care. 
They just want to make sure that you're registered so that they can collect taxes. But the Jews, well, the Jews cared very deeply where you were born. They cared about your lineage. They kept careful records and genealogies in order to determine what tribe everyone belonged to. So in Israel, it made sense for the census to be conducted in this way. And Joseph was a descendant of King David. So he and Mary, they traveled to Bethlehem, which was the birth home of David. Bethlehem was a, a small town in the hill country of Judea. It was located about six miles south of Jerusalem. I don't know if you always picture that, right? It's a, it's a small little hamlet, really, within visible distance of Jerusalem. It would have been a roughly 90-mile journey for Joseph and Mary, a journey that would normally take about four to five days, traveling about 20 miles per day, uh, depending on which route that they chose. But with Mary being pregnant, this journey would likely have taken them you know, more than a week, if not as many as two weeks uh, to complete. Now, the most direct route to get from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem would be through Samaria, as you can see on the map there. But because of the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, most Jews avoided traveling through Samaria, and they opted instead to travel along the Jordan Rift Valley, which follows the, the Jordan River. And then once they arrive at Jericho, just north of the, of the Dead Sea, they would then bang a right, and they would head west up the mountains into Jerusalem. Once they arrived in Jerusalem, they would uh, jump on the highway of the patriarchs and they would ride, uh, ride, no, they wouldn't ride. They would head south down to Bethlehem, about six miles. Notice that the text says that Mary and Joseph made their way up to Jerusalem. For those of you who've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about this. You're like, yes, Chris, we know. You've told us this so many times. But for those who haven't been here, when the Bible writers talk about going up to Jerusalem or going up to Bethlehem, they're not talking about traveling north. That's the way we talk, right? We're going up to Bangor or we go down to Portland, right? That's how we describe things. But when they describe going up, they're not talking about north or south. They're talking about elevation. They're talking about traveling up. And as you can see on the map, the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem and Bethlehem is a journey south, right? But what you can't see on the map and what I've pictured there in the top picture is that this was a climb. This was a crazy climb up, up, up over hills and through valleys as they made their way up in elevation to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. Now, look at that picture for a moment and picture yourself very pregnant. Okay, that's easier for some of our ladies um, than, than some of the guys, but the guys, you, you've seen enough pregnant ladies, right? I mean, like the walk, um, <laughs> right? I, when my wife was pregnant, I perfected the pregnant walk around our home, so um, sorry. So, but, but picture that, you know, look at that, and now picture climbing that journey when you're really, really pregnant. Imagine how difficult, imagine how uncomfortable this might have been. Imagine traveling 10, maybe 15 miles per day, either by foot 
or by donkey. Now, I know, you know that you know that you know that she traveled on a donkey, except the text never, ever, ever, ever says that Mary rode on a donkey. This year, we didn't have a donkey for our telling of the Christmas story, and people were like, we're going to mess up the whole Christmas story. No donkey. I was like, no, we're just trying to be more biblical. So, Now, could she have traveled on a donkey? Sure, maybe. Or maybe they walked. The text just doesn't say. Either way, this would have been an incredibly uncomfortable and difficult journey for Mary. And it's all because of what? Because a powerful leader named Caesar Augustus snaps his fingers and commands a census. At the decree of Rome, suddenly a a young couple... Joseph and Mary, a couple that Caesar doesn't even know these people, right? He doesn't know them. They know of him. He snaps his fingers and suddenly they got to pack their things and they got to leave Nazareth and they got to head to Bethlehem. But that's looking at it from a human perspective, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, there, there is something so much bigger going on here in this story. So much bigger than even Caesar Augustus and his whims right? Listen to these words of the prophet Micah. In the Old Testament book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, we read these words. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Through the prophet Micah, God declared that the Messiah, the eternal one, the one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, was going to come from Bethlehem. By the way, there's two Bethlehems in Israel. That's why he includes the Bethlehem Ephrathah. It actually designates it as there in that region. Ephrathah is the region. So from a human perspective, it looks like Caesar Augustus is calling all the shots, right? But he is nothing more than a pawn in the hands of the sovereign God. God is using the decrees of a self-absorbed leader in Rome to bring Mary and Joseph to the exact place where the Messiah had to be born, Bethlehem. Well, after Mary and Joseph arrived, we read in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke says that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, I don't know about you, but all the pictures in my mind, all the stories that I've heard about the birth of Jesus look something like this. Just as Joseph and Mary were cresting the hill to come into Bethlehem, suddenly her water broke right? And, and, and desperate to find a place to stay, Joseph is running all over Bethlehem, knocking on every door saying, hey, do you have any room? My wife's about to give birth. And the evilest people in the entire world apparently lived in Bethlehem <laughs> because all of the innkeepers said, don't you see the sign? No vacancy, right? Flashing neon signs. And, and, and most of the stories, most of the stories that I've read include some sort of a mean, like heartless innkeeper, right? Go away, go away, it's late, I'm tired. I don't care if she's giving a baby, right? They, shooing them away. 
go find someplace else to stay. Isn't that the picture that you've seen over the years? It, you know, it is possible. It is absolutely possible that Mary and Joseph, that she went into labor just as they were arriving in Bethlehem. That's possible. But it's also possible that they'd already been there for days, maybe even weeks. I mean, it's possible. They could have been there for a month. I don't know. All I know is that the text says, while they were there. Doesn't sell Hollywood movies quite as great, right? While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Because all pregnant women, there comes a time when they're going to give birth. So why do we have this picture in our minds? Why is it that we picture this, this unbelievable urgency with Joseph running around frantically to find a place for his child to be born? Well, part of the reason is because of our understanding of the word that is translated as in, I-N-N, in verse 7. See, in our minds, we actually picture Joseph, you know, running around to every Holiday Inn and Motel 6 in, in Bethlehem, Right? But the Greek word that is translated as in is the word kataluma, kataluma, which can also be translated as guest room. In fact, some translations actually translate it as guest room. In fact, the only other time that this word is used in Luke's gospel, he only uses it one other time in the entire book. The only other time he uses this word kataluma is in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal. And in Luke chapter 22, let me read it to you. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Cataluma. Where is the Cataluma where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. It was common in those days to have a separate guest room in your house, a, a Cataluma, which oftentimes was on an upper level. It was also common in those days for homes to have an area where animals could be brought in, either in a courtyard or sometimes it would be uh, beside the home. Sometimes it would even be underneath the home. Because of the, the unique features of the land near Bethlehem, there are many, many caves in this area. For those of you who are going to be traveling with me next year to Israel, we're going to visit these caves near Bethlehem, and we're going to read the story of Jesus' birth while sitting in one of these caves. And these caves were commonly used as, as places of shelter, shelter for both shepherds caring for their sheep, as well as for homes in this area. Many, many of the homes that were built around Bethlehem were either built beside or on top of these caves. And so Luke tells us in verse 7 that there was no room in the Cataluma, the guest room. Because of the census, Bethlehem was crowded and, and the guest room, the Cataluma, was full of people. Not exactly the type of space that you want to give birth in, right? A room full of people. Am I right? Right. And because the room was full, Joseph and Mary had to seek privacy and shelter someplace else. Now, the oldest traditions 
on record say that Mary gave birth in one of these caves that was commonly used for animals. That's why there was a manger there. In fact, the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which was built around 330 AD under Constantine, it was built over the top of a series of caves over one particular cave that they believed was the birthplace of Jesus. See, more than likely, more than likely, Jesus was born in a cave that was either beneath or, or near the home where they had been staying. It was there um, where the Cataluma was full. But no matter how you think about it, whether he was born in a cave or born in a courtyard or born some other place where there happened to be a manger, it was a most humble place for the Son of God to be born. And after he was born, Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now, swaddling cloths, they, they were strips of cloth that would be used to wrap the baby up tight, kind of lock their limbs in place, and they would secure the baby and keep them warm and keep them secure. I remember we got taught how to do that as soon as our first baby was born in the hospital. The nurses came over and said, let me show you how to swaddle the baby, right, with those baby blankets. They, still, they all look the same, don't they? Every hospital has the one with the, like, the blue and the pink stripes on it. Yeah. So we would swaddle them up, and it would prevent them from like gouging their eyes and face with their sharp little nails and help them to feel safe and secure. But uh, after she swaddled him up, got him all wrapped up and bundled up, she then laid him in a manger. This is a feeding trough that would normally be used for animals. But unlike the images that we are used to seeing, you know, of a wooden manger with X-brace support legs, right? You've seen it. It was on one of the slides this morning, right? So the little X-brace supports, and it's like overflowing with hay, and it's just beautiful, right? How do you make a feeding trough beautiful? (laughs) You know, like, we have. So the typical manger of that time was made from a large stone with the top chiseled out in order to provide food and water for animals. Again, when we visit the area of Megiddo, we're going to see some of these mangers uh, in the excavations from the stables that are there. You know, as I close my eyes and I, and I, you know, I try to picture Mary and Joseph in a cave with, with their newborn son, as I picture them all swaddled up in those claws and, and resting in this stone feeding trough for animals, I cannot help but wonder how Joseph and Mary must have been feeling. I mean, they were told by an angel, both of them, a separate appearance. Gabriel goes to both of them, right? And, and they were told that they were going to have the Messiah as their son. You start planning for your child's birth, right? We start like prepping the room and getting the baby room all ready. It's like a big deal. Think about how big a deal it must have been for Joseph and Mary. They're going to have the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel. This cannot be the way that they had hoped it would all go down, right? Man, I just can't wait till, till baby Jesus is born. I can't wait to lay him in a feeding trough. It's going to be amazing, Right? This is none of their expectations. This is not how you prepare for Christmas, right? But I just love the fact that Jesus' birthplace was so humble, so humble. Because you know why? That's the exact way that Jesus was gonna live his entire life. His life was marked by humility from start to finish. 
He never lived up to the, the expectations that we have, did he? He didn't care about that. He set an example for us on how to live with humility and as a servant. Jesus is not a God who is far away and untouchable, unapproachable, right? Jesus is a God who came near. He entered into the, the, the worst of circumstances, right? Suffered the most, the most heinous of deaths. Jesus is a God that can relate to us. You know, if he'd been born in a palace, we couldn't relate to that. How many of you guys were born in a palace? Anybody here? There we go. We had one. Awesome. That's great. You must have a very nice home. That's great. That's awesome. He was born in, a, in, in an area that was set aside for animals. You know, how crazy is it, is it to think that that night, as King Herod, as King Herod is sleeping in one of his many palaces throughout Israel, he had many palaces. One of them is only just a few miles away from here. You can actually see Bethlehem from his palace at Herodium. How crazy is it to think that, that Herod was sleeping in a palace in some comfortable bed while the true king of the Jews was lying in a feeding trough made for animals. Wow. Well, verse 8 says that in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, right? Of course they were filled with fear, right? And I have to say, though, I just love the fact that on the night that Jesus was born, God sent an angel to reveal the best news in human history, the news of the birth of the Messiah, to shepherds. To shepherds, you, you, you got to understand that shepherds were one of the most despised classes in all of Israel at the time. They were unclean. They were outcasts. They were unclean because they had to work 24-7. They couldn't follow all the rules and regulations surrounding the Sabbath, so they were continually ceremonially unclean. And the elite, all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of the religious leaders looked down on shepherds at the, as the lowest of lowlifes. That's who they were but they were also the exact type of people that Jesus came to save, right? Jesus came for sinners. He came for the lost. He came for the broken. He came for the weak. He came for people like me. He came for people like you. On the night that Jesus was born, God didn't send the angel to Pharisees. He didn't send it to the priests. He didn't send it to the Sadducees. God chose shepherds. It's amazing. Many biblical scholars believe that, that these weren't just any shepherds either. They were a special group of shepherds caring for a special flock of sheep. As one author puts it, just north of Bethlehem, there was a place called Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, a designated area reserved for shepherds who were given the responsibility of raising sheep specifically for the Passover sacrifice. It is possible that the shepherds that the angel appeared to could have been these shepherds that were near Bethlehem at Migdal Eder raising lambs for the Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem, a sacrifice which was meant to point people to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make as the Lamb of God. Isn't that incredible? Well, these shepherds, they're out in the fields and they're just, you know, they're doing what they always do. They are watching and caring for their sheep. You know, one minute it's, you know, it is a, a silent night. 
a holy night. And all is calm and all is bright. That's the night that the shepherds were having, right? And then all of a sudden, it's joy to the world, right? The Lord is come. Text says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That's, that's English for they were terrified, right? They were terrified, and rightly so. Not only was an angel appearing to them, but it says that the glory of the Lord was encompassing them, the glorious light that emanates from His holiness. They're terrified. These are sinful beings in the presence of this glorious light emanating from God. But in verse 10, we're told that the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't need to be scared because I am bringing you good news of great joy. He says, I, I have the best news for you. The Christ has been born this day. Now, the word Christ is a title that means Messiah. So the angel tells these shepherds that the Messiah has come. The Savior is born. And the angel reveals two things about the salvation that is being made available through this Messiah. First, he says this. He says that this good news is for all the people. The good news of the Savior is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So whoever is everyone, anyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. But the angel also says, he makes it clear that this good news is also personal. He looks at the shepherds and he says, for unto who? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. This Savior that has been born, he looks at the shepherds and says, this Savior is for you. While it is true that God's gift of salvation is made available to everyone, it has to be received personally. I can't receive the Savior for my kids. You can't receive the Savior for your loved ones. They have to choose to receive the gift that God has given. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, John says this, He, Jesus, came to His own, this is the Jewish people, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. See, the good news is available to everyone, but it must be received personally. In verse 12, the angel continued, and he said, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That, hey, Mary just did that, right? Mary did that. He says, here's what you need to look for. When you go into Bethlehem tonight, you're going to find something unusual. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Well, that's not too unusual. 
but lying in a feeding trough made for animals. Now, I think I can say with a pretty good deal of confidence that they're not going to find many newborn babies in Bethlehem that night wrapped in swaddling cloths and lay, laying in, in a feeding trough. Do you agree? It's a pretty good, pretty good indication. They're only going to find one of those, right? The circumstances of Jesus' birth, they were humble, but they were also a sign for the shepherds. Well, in verse 13, the celebration continues. I mean, just as they start to get comfortable, okay, we're starting to get comfortable with the fact that we got an angel here, right? Verse 13, the celebration continues. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I honestly, I really, I can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like to be one of those shepherds there. As soon as the first angel's announcement is finished, a multitude of the heavenly host appears. A number of angels, probably too great to even count. And together they are praising God. Have you ever thought about the birth of Jesus from the viewpoint of the angels? Think about it for a second. The angels knew Jesus before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus, the, the Son of God who has always existed. Jesus, the second member of, of the triune, triunity, right? The Trinity, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus. The, Jesus, the, the one who became a human being as, in the form of a baby, the one that the angels, the one that the angels had known for as long as they existed. Jesus was the one who created the world, we're told in the scriptures, right? Including the angels. And for as long as they've existed, they've known this second member of the Trinity, Jesus. And now they see this Jesus lying in a manger. You see, for the angels, they understood that they, they weren't just looking at a baby. They were looking at God. They're like, wow, what is happening? This is unbelievable. And so they were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This praise that they, they spoke here is the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. We sang it this morning, didn't we? It's Latin for glory to God in the highest. And text says that they said it. Maybe it was a chant. Maybe they shouted it. Maybe they spoke it. Maybe they sang it. I'm not sure. I mean, we always picture singing angels, right? But again, that might be based, based way more on tradition than on what we read in the scriptures. But it doesn't matter whether they sang it, shouted it, chanted it. What matters is what they said. And what they said is that what took place in Bethlehem that night was something that brings glory to God in the highest heavens, and it brings peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. It, the, the, what, take, what took place in Bethlehem that night has an impact in both heaven and earth. This is the most significant night in human history, the night that the Son of God entered the world that he created. 
Well, verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It's so funny, even just reading it that way, it's going, oh, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You know, like, that's so not the way that they would have said it, right? Like, let's go. We got to go. We got to go see this thing. And it says, verse 16, that they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They're like, what are we waiting for? We got to go see this thing that that God has made known to us. And when they get there, when they get there, what do they find? They find Mary and Joseph and they find this baby lying in a feeding trough made for animals. It was just as the angel had told them. Verse 17 says, so that's what was revealed to them. Now, this is their response. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Don't you just love the shepherds in this story? Can you feel their joy? Can you feel their excitement? I mean, what an honor. What an honor they've been chosen for. God revealed the greatest news in human history to the shepherds that night. And the shepherds, they believed the message that was revealed to them. They believed it. And so they went to see it for themselves. And when they found Jesus lying in the manger, they could not keep from sharing this good news with others right? They couldn't keep this good news to themselves. They told everyone who would listen to them. They told them everything that God had revealed to them. You know, the words of the prophet Isaiah had been fulfilled. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. How many of us are doing the same thing? Are you sharing the good news that's been revealed to you? Oh, I want to be more like a shepherd in that regard, you know? What an incredible news that we've received. You believe it, right? Good. You're going to share it with others. Tell others. And they say, I don't want to hear it. You say, okay, I'll tell somebody else, right? Move on. That's fine. That's fine. But it's good news and it's worth telling. It's worth telling. But Mary... It says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You know, when the shepherds were gone and the night grew quiet, Mary's heart was filled with wonder. <laughs> None of this night went the way that she had thought it would go, you know? But neither would the rest of his days, right? Man, there's still so much. There's still, I mean, Mary knew a lot. Gabriel had revealed a lot but there were so many details that she still didn't know about her son and all the things that that he was going to go through. But what she did know that night is there lying in her arms in that probably a cave there in Bethlehem, lying in her arms was the son of God, her Messiah. She pondered these things. She treasured these things in her heart. How about you? 
Does the birth of Jesus fill your heart with wonder? I was telling the folks out back before when we were praying this morning that, man, I, you know, I've heard this story so many times. And, you know, and, and you know, this past week, been preparing to, to share this story today. And I'm still like, my mind, it's still hard for me to get my head around the idea that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. He could have come as a 30-year-old, you know? Like, you know what? I don't want to have to go through all that whole baby phase, you know? I'm God. I'm going to do what I want. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, and he came as a baby in Bethlehem, laying there in his mom's arms in a, in a, in a feeding trough. I'm filled with wonder. It blows my mind. I hope it never stops blowing my mind. Oh, the condescension, right? That God would, would humble himself to be born in that way. And then you just think about the rest of the way that Jesus lived his life, and he, he lived with such humility. The birth of the Savior, it's what Christmas is all about, right? It's the good news of great joy. God's gift of salvation is available to everyone, but you have to receive it personally. The baby in a manger, he, he grew into a man, right? He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, and we're told that three days later, after he died on a cross, he was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he came back to life and walked back out of that tomb. See, Jesus not only lived a perfect life, he, he died for our sins, paying the price for our sins, because the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. It's the punishment that's deserved for our sin against God. But he paid for those sins when he died. But when he rose from the dead, he defeated death. He defeated the enemy that, that is coming for every single one of us, right? He defeated that enemy. And he made life available to everyone who believes. Salvation is the reason that Jesus came. It's the reason he was born. He came to save sinners. He said in his own words, he said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. And so the greatest gift that you will ever receive, whether you receive it on Christmas Day or any other day of the year, the greatest gift you will ever receive is the gift of salvation that's made available through Jesus, through Jesus. And if you've never made that decision, if you've never made that decision, it, it's really not as complicated as you might think. It does require humility, which he modeled, by the way. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You need to be willing to say, I am a sinner. I have violated God's commands, and I deserve punishment for that. And you have to believe that Jesus came and actually paid the price for your sins. You have to believe that, that he died on a cross and that he was uh, raised to life three days later. And the Bible says if you believe that, if you, if you come to Jesus and you say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and I believe that you died for my sins and you rose from the grave, the Bible says that you'll be saved. You'll be saved from your sins and you receive eternal life. That's why he came, to give you eternal life. And so if you've never made that decision, it's really simple. Tell him. Talk to him. Talk to God. You can do that where you're sitting. You can do that when you get home. You can do it after the service. You can come and talk to me if you have questions. But you need to talk to God and tell him, hey, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And the Bible says you will be saved. You'll receive 
the uh, forgiveness of your sins and eternal life through Jesus. It's that simple. So that's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's not the end of the story though, right? We've got a long ways to go in the book of Luke, so buckle up, right? We've got a lot more to cover about the life of Jesus, and we'll continue with that series in a couple of weeks. But uh, I pray, I pray that today and every day your heart is filled with joy, awe, and wonder as you reflect on this good news of great joy that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born. Amen? Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for the incredible truth that you entered the world you created, that you lived a perfect life and you died in our place. God, we thank you so much that you defeated our our, our sins, paying for our sins on the cross, and you defeated death by rising from the grave. And God, I thank you that because of your sacrifice on our part, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can have our sins forgiven and we can experience eternal life. Oh God, death has been defeated. For those who are followers of you, when we close our eyes here on earth, it just opens the beginning of a whole new existence with you for all eternity. We thank you that you made that possible through sending your son. And we worship you today on Christmas and God help us to worship you every day. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.